everybody. Welcome to our show. I'm Liz. And I'm Taylor. This is a podcast for and about the town we love. And now we're talking Darian. Hello and welcome. Today is April 18th, 2022. It is our second year, so now we're using years in our opening comments. Um, <laughs> and today we have the Darian Land Trust with us. We have John O'Brien, the president of the board, Beth Harmon, executive director, and Den Freelingheisen, a co-chair of stewardship. Lovely. Very lovely. I mean, we have been talking a lot about development on the show lately, and it's because real estate is hot in Darien, and everyone wants to know about it. So we're kind of in that same vein, but we're going to go on the opposite, and we're going to talk about no development and what it means to preserve open spaces here in Darien. What does that mean for the residents and the town at large? And kind of what are these unsaid visual cues we have in town that draw people to this bucolic you know, town in the first place? Yeah. And what we do with our land here seems to be under a microscope lately. So I look forward to this conversation. I do too. And by the way, I also look forward to one other conversation, which I should tell our, our listeners. Uh, this coming Friday, we're actually at the DCA, right, Taylor? That's right. June 3rd, we're going to be at the DCA uh, for their annual meeting. We're the guest of honor, which is crazy. But Essie Cup is is really the guest of honor. I know, this she's is interviewing the, yeah, us. That's the irony. Essie Cup is the one moderating. And she, somehow we've gotten the, the center stage, but she, with her, you know, her resume, my Lord, I want to make out with her. Um, (laughs) Okay. And this summer, we're going to be at the sidewalk sales, shifting gears. Shifting gears, too. Shifting gears from making out to the summer, we're going to be going at the sidewalk sale. I think like July 16th or something in the midsummer. But if you guys are out and about in Darien, come out this summer to the sidewalk sale, right? Absolutely. And uh, let's get back to the land trust. Here we go. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for coming tonight. John, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Beth, thank you for coming. So excited to be here tonight. Thanks. And Den, I'm so glad you could make it too. Thank you for being here. Great. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, thank you guys. I mean, we kind of talked in our little intro about, you know, you guys, your different roles here. And I, I, I said to Taylor... Um, you know, it's not always exciting when you hear offhand, in my personal opinion, bear with me here, it's not always so exciting when you're talking about land trust, people are kind of like, well, what is this? I don't know, is this just another thing? But to me, this is actually pretty intense and important, specifically as New York City clears out after 2020, people come to the suburbs, and like they did the 1970s here, this big rush to the burbs, you find all the green sp- green space here quickly depleting. And now more than ever, we see development everywhere you look in Darien. Sure. Mm. Um, and it makes what you guys are doing critical um, to the feel, to the you know, the residents here, to how we feel, how we perceive our town, to how we relate to our town. So uh, who wants to open that up? Maybe when you guys tell me what the mission statement is of the Land Trust. John, do you want to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, mission statement is, you know, we, the put, Darien Land Trust. Put you on the spot right there, yeah, John. Yeah, that's, <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Uh, is to permanently preserve, and permanently it's important, um, it's forever, any piece of property we have, providing the community with environmentally rich habitats, scenic vistas, and the opportunities for educational experience, and the quiet enjoyment of nature. That's in... Right, a and sentence. Just, w- right, what do we do? Um, and then the immediate response to that for someone like me is, okay, well, wh- why is this important? Why, you know, why is anyone? Why is this important? Anyone in Darien or anywhere? You know? Whether it's whether it's the uh, larger question about about the environment and e- ecology and preserving, or the smaller question when you dial down into it, you know, the the birds, the ants, uh, everything that lives on that space, um, and wouldn't be there if it was uh, another residence. 
Well, and, and Dan, I, I love that, John, because in Dan, I, I, I did some research leading up to this. You're done smiling uh-oh. at me. You can't see that. <laughs> that like, uh-oh. And you had a great quote like that, kind of what, John, you're getting at. And you had said on a recent article, environmentally, economically, historically, and socially, it makes sense to me that our community does all it can to preserve, protect, and enrich that few open spaces that are left. Right, right. Well, I think that's just scratching the surface. I mean, there's so many ways that, as a society, we interact with our land, but what we do with it says a lot about us. And uh, in a place where there's not a lot of open space left, I think it's really important that our community expresses how valuable, recognizes how valuable it is, and it's an opportunity for us to come together around a common asset that is a depleting asset. So, listen, I think a lot of people come to town and are not aware of where Darien was 100 years ago, where it is today, and where it might be 50 years ago. They think it's just a nice place. You discover it, you work, your family's safe. And then you start to discover the little gems around town. And right. that's what ha- that was my experience. Um, and, and if we don't protect those little gems that are left, what are families going to be clinging to or discovering and, and, and valuing when they get here? You know, you can have your career, you have your family, but what about our environment? And so that's for the people, right? Yeah. At the same time, what John was touching on is that you have – um, for example, our, our proximity in the mid-Atlantic, we're in the middle of the Atlantic Flyway. And a suburban lawn that has a landscaper coming every week is not really a healthy habitat, right? It's, it's almost a desert relative to a meadow. Oh, and, we, so we suburban lawn. Suburban lawns, okay, I got right? It. And, 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 we're, and, and every leaf is picked up and blown away. So the insects that winter and feed, the birds that feed... All of those places that are habitats are at risk. So if like if, if a naive resident like myself would say like, well, Dan, you're you know Beth here, I've got uh, I've got you know an acre of land that I live on, and only twenty percent of my house is on that, so I've got a lot of land for animals. Like I mean, yeah. that would be kind of a very naive and insulting thing to say, right? No. Well, no, it, <laughs> it, it's not. It comes down to what you do with that other eighty percent of your property. Okay. And I, one of the things we've done on Waterbury Field, which is a, a property on the corner opposite Weeburn Club there, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to transition it from a suburban lawn, which it was historically until the time we acquired it. And in the centerpiece of it, there's a pollinator garden. And it really was designed to be a showpiece that people can have uh, a really beautiful garden that is also a really valuable natural habitat. It doesn't, you know, you don't just have to point and shoot and put in a bunch of plants that are not native. You can work with a broad spectrum of native plants and manage that little tuft of land a few hundred square feet. And it ta- makes a difference. And this is the land you're talking about. You said across from Weeburn Country Club. Right. Okay. It's a, a property, it's a Darien Land Trust property called Waterbury Field. Right okay. where. And how many properties do you guys have? And let's talk about some of these properties because I think people are probably familiar with them but don't really realize that they're land trust properties. Yeah, and, 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 it's, and it's a combination of land that we own and conservation easements that have been granted to us, which means the owner still owns the land, but they've agreed to stipulations of not doing this, that, or the other thing, mostly in an environmental and forever e- ecological way, um, we have we have over eighty properties. Um, it's probably a mix of sixty to twenty owned deed land, and and conservation easements, and it's over two hundred twenty acres. That's what it is over two hundred twenty yeah. acres. Yeah. And how has all that land come to you guys, Beth? You're, yeah, I know you, Beth, knows how to. This is your bread and butter as the, the executive, right? Well, yeah, but uh, what what's really uh, incredible is 
that our trust started with an anonymous donation back in 1956, with like a thousand bucks, which in today's it's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but the first property that came our way was Dunlap Woods, which is adjacent to Selix Woods. And um, wow. again, nature doesn't differentiate, but together those two properties make that special place, um, mm-hmm. the second largest nature preserve in town. It's 50 acres between yeah. the combined. I can't believe it's so, 50 acres. That's huge. And it's, and it's, and it's kind of shoehorned in between 95 and the railroad tracks. But while you're in there, you would never know that unless you really have your ears up. I mean, it's it has seven different habitats, mm-hmm. environmental habitats. It's it's got a five acre lake, I believe. Lots and lots of walking trails. It's 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 beautiful. And then on the other end of town, you have Olson Woods, which borders Stanford, which is another marvel because you're right there, and it's this. It really is a hidden gem. So between Dunlap and Olson, we have just this beautiful properties on either end of town, you know, I-95 there, and these incredible, magical places with incredible numbers of ecosystems and for wildlife and everything. I mean, I think Den could probably walk them blindfolded at this point, and he would know what season he was in and everything. And um, so that's why we call him our... I call him our walking encyclopedia. So I read the article in uh, Darian Neighbors magazine <laughs> <laughs> um, that says that between your organization and the town, 10% of Darian's acreage is preserved. What portion of it is yours and what portion of it is the town's? I don't know what that split is, but uh, I would say it's you know pretty close to 50-50. Really? Yeah, okay. I mean, we have 200 acres. I, I, I haven't really thought about it in that sort of data way I think about it in terms of um, which properties we have that can be accessible to people without being too disruptive to nature so in other words are big enough to support both the interest of the creatures that we're trying to help sustain and also become a, a community resource so Olson Woods was not really a public property but it's seven, 15 acres uh, you know four or five acre lake uh, and River runs right through it Love that phrase, river and river running <laughs> yeah, through totally. it, right? Brad but, Pitt on the mind. But yes, yes. I mean, it's really nice on a spring or a summer or an autumn day or even winter mm-hmm. um, to be able to walk a path along a New England stream that's a babbling brook and it's completely shaded, you know. And it's just a, a just a really kind of unique little place that you can get to without having to get in your car and go anywhere. It's right in your backyard. That blows my mind. As as Darian sits between, you know, I-95 and the Merritt, you know, we're 45 minutes from New York City, a direct train ride. We've got an ocean right here, and then you can walk a babbling brook in our own town. And I mean, Mm. I I don't want to take this for granted. I know this is a lot of work. And I I, I was going back to like how you guys, Olson Woods, how you got that. It's like, so the first one, Selig or Dunlap Woods was a donation. Yeah. As, As was Olson. And someone donated the whole property. Is that how that works? That's how it works. And then between sort of those unique kind of bookends, uh, there have been grassroots campaigns like Mather Meadows and one another, which is kind of a fond memory for John and I, just and for Den too, but for John and I, it was one of the first things we were involved with. And that's when we got the three acre, nearly three acre Mandel property. Um, Where's that? Which is on... Um, 
which is on Hollow Tree Ridge Road and uh, right, right where Ox Ridge, right where Ox Ridge, Ridge is. Okay. Runs into it on that corner. Okay. Stop sign, three-way stop sign. Okay. And it's yeah. kind of it's kind of become the entrance to what we call a greenway, which means it's just one one stretch after another. If you were a bird, you're just in your heyday because you you just keep going, and there's other parcels there. But that that was a capstone because it's not meant to be um, trod upon like many of our properties, which I think people are understanding more and more how how critical that is, uh, just to let nature thrive. Yeah, that's actually a question I had because I feel like. Um if, if, uh, for all these properties, people want to walk on them. Like, you know, why do you have these properties just sitting here if I can't go explore them or can't take my dog to go run on them? And I think that's part of your point, right? Like that you yep. do not want us on some of these properties. Daniel, look at me like, it's finally clicking for me, Liz. No, yeah, you're, you, you got it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, you know, some places are right for it and some aren't. And I think in, in certain situations in a neighborhood, when a property is transitioned to us, the immediate neighbors are worried that, oh, all, all these people are going to be wandering around in my backyard, basically. Um, oh, that's and that's not, the, you know, that's not the thing. And just to build on this theme of greenways, there are seven to nine properties along Hollow Tree between Post Road and Talmadge Hill Road, the north edge of town. And collectively... They really are a ribbon of safe places for migrating birds and insects, places where the landscaper's not coming in every five days or seven days and mm-hmm. blowing everything up. No pesticides are getting put down. No herbicides are getting put down. So these, even though it's not one big 18-acre piece, collectively those pieces of properties become really valuable because it's a place for birds and insects, pollinators, mm-hmm. to, to forage and overwinter. They're dependent on not being disturbed during their dormant part of their life cycle. And that's that extends into the way we're managing our meadows. But we can get into that later. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been quiet because I, I struggle with this concept because I know there's so much focus on the town of Darien and how expensive it is to live here and how very little affordable housing we have. And yeah, it seems like there's a new proposal for, you know, multifamily development around every corner. There's legislation knocking on our windows. Is this not potentially, what do you say to people who say this is a strategy to prevent multifamily housing from coming into Darien? Uh, it's, it's, I don't think there you can even commingle those issues. I mean, the, the benefit of one is very clear for society, and the benefit of the other is very clear for the ecology. And people are much more mobile than uh, what it's maybe the second largest undeveloped or single owner property on along with Plum Island on the Connecticut coast, off of the Connecticut coast in the case of Plum, I think that's actually New York State. But we're really at a point where because there's room, an apartment building or a high-density development isn't, because it could go there, doesn't mean it's the right place for it. So I've always struggled with this discussion of trying to balance uh, the fact that we're not anti-development. We're, tr- we're for smart development because smart development enables a community to preserve its richest natural assets, which we have very few left of. So uh, I think what really needs to happen for us to be successful in terms of dealing with both of those interests is for the community to really become more engaged. And it took me about 15 years of living in this town before I really started to pay attention to how anything got done. I just took it for granted. It was a nice place. My kids were happy. The schools were good. My commute was good. All good. So 
things are moving much more rapidly now because of outside interest, and I think that's the challenge for us as a community, not just for us as a land trust. We, I mean, we can be a mouthpiece, and when you get into the political um, influence coming in, you look at New Canaan, Fairfield, Greenwich, besides Darien, are really being challenged with how their land is being used or repurposed. And that's not coming from local developers, it's coming from outside developers as much as anything else. I think uh, one thing also to touch in on is all the new residents coming, and I think a lot of the calls and questions we're getting now are from new residents, a lot of them coming out of the city, and that's going to be a galvanizing uh, thing for the community because you have people who haven't lived here for a long time, and they've moved here because of the attributes this town has. And so they're asking questions, and they want to they want to get involved. And What are they asking? You know, they're just, for example, if they, um, we've done a lot of uh, outreach. It actually started during COVID, and I think one of the best just sort of grassroots example is we have a presence at the farmer's market um, once a month. And during COVID, that's when people were moving out here. So we had a lot of interesting conversations. And so some people were looking to move here. Some people were renting at the time. Some people had bought their house, you know, virtually. And so so they found out maybe they were bordering a land trust property. And that's not something you're familiar with uh, when you've, you know, moved out of a cosmopolitan area like New York City. And so the questions, you know, have been, uh, you know, is this really true? This what I get to look at is protected forever. That's that's one of my first questions. Like, is it forever protected? Can anyone ever? Is there any way to go through a loophole? Like they always seem to exist and and knock one of these down and develop it at any point. There's no mm. loopholes here. No yeah. loopholes. And there's, there's nothing to knock down. It's all been knocked down already. But yeah, yeah. No, but sorry, someone could clear it. And, sorry, build. Yes. I mean, like build on it. There, right. There's yeah. no. It's protected in perpetuity. And that's and that's the beauty of what we offer. I would think it's like, so it's funny that the people, so that people are coming out asking these questions. I was going to ask you, Dan, when you were talking, you, 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 you so beautifully said a little bit ago, Dan, how, um, the two arguments of, of development, multi-housing versus protection of land, they're not right. at the same argument. And it made me kind of wonder how you educate people or get people, particularly new people, as you're talking about Beth, to understand like that the attributes that they were drawn to in this town are because of things like that and to find that, um, I don't want to say this, like to, to equally find them important. I don't know, to, like to hold value on them. Because I, I know it's I got easy you, for... It, it works this way. I mean, people come here because it's a certain way. Okay. And they assume that it's it's good, it's nice, and it's going to be that way. They, and they're not aware of w- what forces are chomping at the bit to get change that may not be what we expect. And... So part of that mission is starts really going. Uh, let, let me back back up to the properties that we have trails on. It is so important that we have natural resources, really just truly just a trail through the woods, where families, particularly young families, can take their kids and expose them to just being out in nature. I mean, you can take a class, you can study, but if you're not out there touching it throwing a rock into a pond, running through a shallow stream to get to the other side. That whole sense of exploration that occurs when you are a young child, if you're able to satisfy that curiosity, 
and engage with those kind of assets, then you care. That, you know, that's when you develop the values that will be important for what our future boards are going to be composed of. The people who are going to compose our future boards are little kids now, right? Got it. So they also. need to have an opportunity to connect. Um, and, the other th- and the other thing was the people who, are, who come here don't realize that they need to get engaged. I mean, we're all so busy. You come here, young family, retire, whatever, and you feel like, oh, I'm going to just exhale. I got five minutes to decompress on the weekend before I do my next carpool, whatever. If we don't engage the greater community, somebody else is going to decide what this community looks like in 25 or 30 years. And it probably won't be 25 years. It'll probably be six or 10 years based on what's happening. So I also found it interesting reading the article in the Darien Neighbors magazine that the state actually wants to preserve 21% of its land. Mm. But we're only at 10% here. So is there an active effort to, I mean, 90, what, 7% of Darien is developed? Yep. Are you actively then trying to reclaim another 10%, like take houses down and open them up? Uh, Well, I I wouldn't say we're actively trying to do that. By circumstance and generosity, we've actually reclaimed uh, at least three properties that were formerly residences that are now open space. So we remove, in the case of Mandel property that Beth had just described, that's exactly what happened. But that's not our growth strategy. Uh, Because there's so little land left to acquire and protect here, I mean, there are a couple of ways that we can still influence that and, and not be competitive with the progress of how a neighborhood evolves. Uh, you know, a 3,000-square-foot home becoming a 7,000-square-foot home. I mean, that's all, that's natural. That's, this is just organic growth, right? I mean, where we can be helpful is somebody who has four acres and has the, the ability to, in a state plan, say, you know, I really like thinking about my kids driving by my house and remembering that field that was next door, which was the case of Waterbury Field, the Jocelyn family owned the house, and the big yard was actually a building lot. And they were interested in preserving the look and feel. So we didn't stop development, but we, what we did do was enable a family to achieve their vision. And it's a benefit for the community. It's a benefit for the environment. And it could have been a very large development. Yeah. I and mean, if, I, I and, certainly see it as, you know, both sides. And it's interesting to me that the state is kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. If they want to preserve land, but then they also want to put more dense development in our town it's like which one do you want yeah. I, I don't know like i mean those are some people on opposite sides yeah. of the state i mean there are, there are people <laughs> not sides but it's not coming out of the same mouth yeah and 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 and, and some people in the state who are more representing developers and are influenced by developers that's what we're battling against and oh not battling against that's what we're learning to live with and to try to maximize so it's kind of like we had the Mather family so generous um, and lovingly refer to that, to the four corners there. And you definitely, you feel, you feel it when you're there, whether you're on foot or you're by hook or crook. And, and um, I think that it's like, who, who's, the fu- who's that future family or, or individuals? Uh, and that's what, you, that's what you count on. That's what society is always counted on is the future like your children someday being 
the drivers of that or you know being on the board of the land trust this is this is what it's all about it's about awareness and education and outreach and and touch you know really reach out and touch both ways so like, can I get to the logistics with you guys the finances of all this I'm curious if you guys ever kind of I know you do a lot of fundraising so I'm kind of curious what that fundraising how you do it and how you spend that money I mean everyone kind of wants to know where the money goes and as part of the money spending I'm wondering do you guys actually pull together money to buy properties that you think would be really inherit like enhance you know this the, the open spaces we're going for here or do you use that money to maintain both all these properties? Yeah, it's you know that's those are the two ways that we use our resources to okay. take care of our land and to acquire land. Okay. Um, and the, from the acquisition, and I'll turn it over to Beth and John, um, just historically, we could start an, accus- uh, an, an acquisition by seeding it and saying, look, we're putting up the first chunk, join us. Oh. And, that, and, that, and that was the case. I mean, that was a very collaborative effort between the community land trust, the state, when Matt, the first piece of the Mather Meadows was acquired. It was about 20 years ago, 2003. Yeah. 2003 That's actually when I heard about it. When I was, Terry I was invited involved. to a fundraising party for Mather Meadows. I was like, what's that? The first time I, heard about I lived it. on the other side of town. Oh, no way. And my, fr- and my friend was hosting the party. and said, yeah, it's the Darien Land Trust. I'd lived in town for over 10 years. I never heard of the place. Wow. I mean, of the group. So, you know, communication is a big deal. And there's a lot of opportunities. So we, I think really from an acquisition standpoint, when you're talking about using our money, we don't really have enough to be saying, hey, let's go buy that property. It just doesn't work that way with the land value here. But we can collaborate and be a catalyst. So when you seed money, or do you guys end up being like 10% of that overall part? I mean, is there, there's, is there there's no, really not a formula. Okay. It all depends on every situation. And yeah. Waterbury was a similar situation. Yeah. And... The interesting thing about Waterbury is uh, that that's when the market was was tanking, tanking mm-hmm. and everyone said, "You're never going to get this done," oh, and it no. and it happened. And people stepped up. People stepped up. Interesting. And but, so, yeah, go ahead. Beth. But to your point about fundraising, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we're different than other nonprofits. We we don't raise money to give away. That's worthy, 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 worthy. We 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 raise money every year to take care of what we have, and for potential projects, acquisitions, partnerships. And so, you know, a lot of people are, don't think we need to fundraise unless we're fundraising for a Mather or a Waterbury. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, it takes several hundred thousand dollars every year to take care of what we have. The properties don't take care of themselves. Oh, that's and good to know. That much money just to basic maintenance or more. Well, well and with, no. cl- with climate change, yeah. you know, you think about trees and every tree that you have to address is several thousand dollars. There's, there's another storm tonight coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I wake up every morning at this and just hoping Beth's not going to call me. It's like, I'm oh, <laughs> hoping I don't hear from either of them. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, but so tell me, if it's supposed it's, it's, to be natural, why are you picking up trees that fall down? Well, they, some, they f- some fall into... Other people's properties. No pun oh, intended. Okay. They fall into a precarious risk position. So yeah. from a stewardship perspective, just to touch on that, and it segues with this discussion about the budget, is that we want to stabilize a property, keep it safe. And often we're dealing with properties that have old fence lines in them, wire, rusty fences, fence posts, 
open wells in the case where we we went through and removed a bunch of invasive plants and there was this open hole in the ground oh my 16 gosh, feet scary. deep. Oh my gosh, and all really of a sudden scary. people can just walk in. So, you know, all of these little things. But when a tree is leaning, if it's in the middle of the woods, we let it go down. But if it's going to fall into a place that's open, uh, you know, then we have to deal with it. Yeah. Or if it's a precarious Makes situation, sense. and think about it. We all have neighbor issues, right? <laughs> Neighbors. Well, we have at least 800 neighbors. Yeah. So everyone's got an opinion. <laughs> so, yeah, that's tough. And, you know, and, and, and we, they all have phones and they call us and tell us, hey, that limb's looking like it's going to fall on my play set. And, you know, we have to deal with that. Uh, yeah. Luckily, we don't do a lot of mowing. We don't do any chemical application, which are big expenses. If you think about your own landscaping, what our budget is to take care of 220 acres is really very efficient relative to what people are used to spending on their one acre or two acres. Right. 100%. So, so, you know, that and then administratively, uh, Beth can speak to that. There are, you know, more pressures in terms of just being a compliant nonprofit and working with other organizations and things like that. So, And then tell me that. Now to keep, I want to go back to your fundraising, though. Like, what is it you do in one big, one big event? Fundraising is that right, John? Well, no, that's actually not a fundraising. I think you're referring to the farm to table dinner. Yeah, that's that, why it's lovely. It, it is lovely. <laughs> I love it. I secured a ticket to that last and, year. And, 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 and that's a great opening because that is an awareness um, event for us. Oh, okay. We do not make money um, unless to the degree that they're sponsors, um, and it, and it's even even then it's minuscule relative to our budget. It's we don't do that, that. That's not a fundraiser. Okay. That that's an awareness for our members, uh, people like you, people, people people who are have, have been regular donors and or who might want to be considered being donors. So you no, know, our our fundraising takes 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 place in basically two different mailings. We call it our fall appeal and our spring appeal, and it's mailings that go out this 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 year. Every four or five years, we do a townwide mailing. But otherwise, we concentrate on people who have given in the past or maybe um, new people who've moved into neighborhoods of some of our um, some of our trustees. And, yes, they're interested in that kind of thing. People who will sign up at the farm-to-table dinner and just want to be kept up to speed, yeah, they, they'll get a mailing. So okay. that's, it's, it's as simple as that. We do it in the fall. We do it in the spring with people. That's tough. It's, it's, it's tough to raise that kind of money in those it, two mailings. It is. Right? You know, there's some, you very, know. there's some very generous people in town. And... Um, we need to find more of them, quite frankly. <laughs> I just got to put on my board of finance hat for a minute. When a piece of land... <laughs> it's always on. Your board of finance hat's always on. <laughs> I love that about you. Purchased. <laughs> Do you guys just pay the taxes as they were in perpetuity? No, we are not taxed by the town. It, it comes off the tax rolls. Oh, really? Genius. So you've worked it out with the town as part of the... <laughs> that's not Genius us. from whose that's, perspective? That, that's not us. That's, that's, that's the way. Any, well, any you know, I'd like to think, uh, Taylor, I, I hear you there. And, uh, and I've actually been... Uh, challenged on that. And I would argue, in fact, in that quote that you read earlier, um, we're enhancing the neighborhood by keeping the neighborhood the way it is. And at some point, a level of development might actually bring values down. Uh, now, we could, you know, nobody seems to agree with me on that. But I would say in the context of our community, with our 60 owned acres and another 20 or so, the amount of space that we're protecting is creating what I like to refer to as air in the sponge in our community. And I think we've all driven through towns or across the state line. When you have a different political jurisdiction, you know it the minute you cross the line because 
it's managed one way and the other place is managed differently. And I think we help preserve the character of this community, which makes it so attractive, which adds to the values. It's why people would pay a premium to be in a neighborhood if it has a certain feel. If your neighborhood becomes degraded because there's um, unbridled development or very wild development, you're at risk of depleting an asset that you think is going to grow in perpetuity from a finance perspective if you're on the tax board. More houses, you know, bigger square feet, higher bill, good. So that, again, it's a balance. It's a balance, but there's so little of it left that we're not, we're not uh, holding back the growth of the tax base. I think we're actually adding to the quality of the tax base. So do your purchases need to be approved by the town? No, not yet. <laughs> I mean, it could be, a, it could be a, you know, at some point it could be an issue, um, but we haven't had to cross that bridge. And I think the town, from a political perspective, is, is pretty much on, on, on board with us in terms of what we're doing and the value that we're bringing to the community. And I think we're actually seeing more support. And it's not necessarily that 20% deal with the state. Look, that's unfair for the state to say 20% and then push more development on us. I mean, that's a bias against certain communities because some com a lot of communities aren't as developed and they can afford to protect and still grow their tax base. We really can't grow our tax base here without going into really high density and consuming the little open space that's left. And that includes subdividable properties. And we have a couple of properties that are, could have been three houses and they're one. There's one that would have been four houses and it's one. And the value, in one case, the house was preserved, the other three were present, prevented from being built, and the value of the property went up. So it was a good thing for the town. Yeah, each of those stories is, are not insignificant, Yeah, especially in our town. Well, it's funny, when earlier you said like uh, you, you bought a property next to your neighbor and they were worried about someone you know, people walking on their property. That was like the last thing that crossed my mind. I would have been, mm. if someone bought a space next to me and I knew it was preserved for, you know, just, you know, open space. Oh my gosh, the value that would bring them for me, in my personal opinion, I would love right. that. No, but it's, it's not for everybody, right? And it's, right. And it's true value. Yeah. It's I true mean, value. It's, it's, you, you know what you're it's, getting. It's not just how we feel. It's, it's, it's actually a monetary value as, <laughs> right, as right. well as, as a town has shared with some people who were considering donating some of their property to the land trust and their question is and if it wasn't a buildable lock it, it was some some amount of land call it a half acre or so yeah and and the, and the dialogue goes to so will my taxes go down I'm like no i think they might go up because that's always going to be there yeah right right <laughs> talking about the value we well, you know about something potentially coming off the tax bill if it's a buildable lot that that we that we are that we would require but that's the kind of thinking that gets you to the point of realizing your value increases when you have open land around you. That that will always be open. Okay, I like that. Um, I, I I don't want to keep you guys on here so long. I, I I'm uh, chatting away. This is a great conversation. I can ask you one other thing though. Speaking of neighbors, unruly neighbors, possibly, um, not really necessarily, but we just had in Bob Bob Gillen, 
from Parklands, the owner developer Parklands, and we talked a lot about Dun, uh, Dunlap Woods and Selick Woods. And this is like you know one of the reasons we have our podcast. There's a lot of controversy around this development over there, and everyone kind of wants to know what's the land trust stance on this. You guys are the you guys are one of the abutting neighbors, the largest abutting neighbor. How do you guys feel about this? Yeah, you know, we have, Bob has been in touch with us um, for a while. Actually, before this was even, even contemplated because I'm sure he shared this with you. The only reason people can visit and park to go into either Selick Woods, which is a town property, or ours, and it's pretty much right there, the dividing line where, where you can park behind Parkland Street, is because of the largesse of him allowing people to park there. Yeah, That's his he property. mentioned that, yes. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. So, so we yeah. have always been in, in touch with him. When he started contemplating this, he reached out He, he reached out to the Friends of Selick Woods and, and to Land Trust, and these are my plans, this is what I want to do, and we're like, okay. How is this going to happen? And we were left, after speaking to him for several times, many hours, many meetings, seeing all the enhancements, seeing the, um, how, how excess water was going to be handled. The fact that we are seeing a development and dealing with a guy who's, you know, for take all the other issues off for a second. He's actually conscientious about trying to improve what is going to follow what exists today. Mm-hmm. Not all developers take that approach right. and, and have an open dialogue. I'll just also throw in, he's been a good neighbor over the 15, 16 years that I've been working in that property um, on the Selix Wood side and now also with the Land Trust side. Uh, so, you know, development is not necessarily a bad thing. Not every development is a, a threat, right? And there are places, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, and, you know, some places are suited for a certain kind of development. And he's working within existing rules, which uh, seems to escape a lot of people who are taking a, an opposition. Now, I'm not advocating for the project. I just couldn't find a sound argument to oppose it. And I appreciated some of the net benefits that are going to accrue to us. We went through the same process when they redeveloped the 95 rest stop. Mm. And it's a collaboration between development and preservationists. And if you have a developer who's sensitive to the value of you as a neighbor, as a naturalist, or as a, in this case a preserve, which was the case with the Landino family who did the rest stop developments, it's a big win. Mm. Because instead of fighting, you're collaborating. It's like, what can we build into your project? You know, We have a seat at the table. What can we build in to help that project be a little bit less... Um, you know, wear and tear on, our, on our, us as neighbors. And, and I think that's the case we're, we're sitting at here now. And the alternative is this guy, uh, who, in this case, Bob, could just flip his property to somebody who could care less and is going to say, I'm going to exploit this to every nth degree, and I've got a, a bunch of out-of-state lawyers who are going to fight for me for as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a real risk, you know? And uh, so I, I think... We've tried to be as strong, as John was saying, as strong an advocate for the, the, the environmental element that we want to protect there as a community resource, as a natural resource. And this guy has been sensitive to that. And I think he should be commended for that rather than being vilified. I like that. I love that you guys have a seat. I love that the land trust has a seat at the table here and, and many of the conversations going around town when it comes to our development, right? So uh, I, I think an important element, we talked about fundraising, we're talking about stewardship. Um, keeping land safe, improving it where we can, making it a more viable habitat for as many species as possible, 
So transitioning a meadow, for example, from a feedstock hay meadow to a wildflower meadow, which supports a much broader diversity of insects and pollinators and the birds and all that sort of stuff. That's really important. But a lot of what we do also is with the benefit of groups like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the high school. And the, for example, we just there's a group of students up at the St. Luke's, St. Luke's School that are building a bunch of bluebird boxes for us. Uh, another student, an Eagle Scout, is building owl boxes for us. And these are just little, uh, little elements that are part of the fabric of how we're trying to engage with our community, with the kids in particular. Again, I think that's, cool. that's when you really want to connect. Um, and, you know, and that's a challenge because our, our families' lives are so structured now and so engaged with whatever hobbies or sports, you know, we really need to be able to find a way to connect with each age group. And, you and know, it's a did, variety of projects. We did that just uh, last Saturday with Ten the Rotary days, Club. Yeah. Rotary Club, the other side which is of the a age group. group of... Uh, you know, adult men and women, and it was right. so great. And they they were kind of like, okay, what what can we do next? So oh, that's there's good to know. Uh, by the way, perfect segue here, Beth. Uh, Moonstruck CBD, that's our sponsor for tonight. Speaking of collaboration, they are started by a local guy. It's a high-end, high-potency CBD line product at an affordable price. And Moonstruck CBD is now offering an exclusive discount to our listeners, promo code NWTD20, to receive 20% off your entire order online, www.moonstruckcbd.com. Badass. All right, Taylor, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Beth, that sounds really great. Okay, yeah, keep, keep going with us, Beth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's... You know, collaboration can be overused, um, but it's the name of the game. And that brings us, you know, also quickly to the collaboration we do. I mean, there's 20-some green organizations in town. Um, and I just, you know, a shout-out to them. Most of them are completely volunteer-driven. Uh, we meet uh, quarterly. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a lot of unsung heroes. And so there's more and more collaboration, for example, with the Nature Center, with um, pollinator pathways, with the library, uh, and it's it's been really great because it's it's a it's a lot of a can-do spirit. And then above that, we have our state relationship with the Connecticut Land Conservation Council, and um, and then on a national level, the um, Land Trust Alliance. Thanks, John. <laughs> There's all these abbreviations. So yeah, yeah. Like the LTA right. and the CLCC, <laughs> yeah. but. That's that's where you're going to see a lot more collaboration and thinking outside of the box moving forward because it has to happen. Okay, I like that. So a good shout out there, like when people come in contact with you, that groups welcome, collaboration welcome. Uh, uh, All right, okay. noted. Yeah, yeah. I like so, uh, so we also have support from the state. We've had federal grants, state grants, local grants, family foundations, and those kind of funding opportunities usually come that are tied to a specific project. So, you know. We're hopeful that that kind of support will also continue. I like it. Yeah. You have some beautiful properties. Thank you for preserving them and for the work you're doing around Darien to make it such a special place to live. How do people get in touch with you guys if they want to donate or they have more questions? What do they do? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's so many ways. Should I give them your cell phone back? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know me. <laughs> so, obviously, we have uh, our website, that's darianlandtrust.org. Okay. And then we have an active presence on Facebook and social media. What's your um, handle on Instagram? I've seen you guys, but I know the handle. Oh gosh. Do you know it offhand? <laughs> Darian Landtrust. Dar yeah. Just look at Darian Landtrust. There you go. You'll be it'll, it'll come up. I like it. I like it. 
This is great, guys. I mean, it's been, I knew what you guys were about, but it's been an education for me, even just sitting here. So I really didn't, right? Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't always yeah. do a great job about telling everybody what we do. And we really thank you for this opportunity because I think this will be effective. Yeah, I hope so. It's great. We're, ha- we're happy to come back on at any time. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> we'll see you out in the field. <laughs> great. great. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks.